Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Brazil. This is a show where I can talk about sports. I can talk about business. I can talk about everything in between. Today, my incredible guest, John Yeager, he's the author of The Coaching Zone, Next Level Leadership in Sports. John, how are you on this beautiful Wednesday night? I'm great, Michael. Really, really excited to be on the show with you. Thank you. I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you reaching out. And I'm excited to ask you a million, maybe not a million questions. That's a little much. But the first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? I love sports because it, well, it's changed my life. You know, it's it's an opportunity. And I'm not going to get into all the cliches about why people do sports about, it. you know, believe in something greater than yourself and other stuff like that. But it, but it's true to a true. certain degree, you know, and uh, I've always loved, loved competition. And I've also always loved the collaboration uh, with teams, but also the collaboration that actually happens from between teams and other teams. You know, if you think of Gonzaga uh, in the semifinals, not, not the finals, <laughs> but in the semifinals when they won with the buzzy beater with Jalen Suggs, and he's hugging this player from uh, uh, UCLA right afterwards. Uh, it's, it's really cool stuff because they pushed each other as far as they could. And his shot just happened to go in at the end. And so those are, those are kind of wonderful moments there. And I think in many ways, sports allows us to feel complete in different ways. The next day can be a little bit different in the next game. And this doesn't matter whether in your youth, high school, college, or even the pro game. And yeah, that happens. And we saw it a lot in the uh, the women's NCAA tournament as well. I watched as many of those games because they were just as just as crazy, um, which was a lot of fun. And yeah, you, you do see that a lot between teams, right? Especially in, in college, I think a little bit more. And once they get to the pros, all these guys kind of know each other already at some point. And there's, you know, there's a lot of more money on the line. Let's just say that. And so it's very, very interesting to me to see kind of how how that shakes out. And I'm just I'm just disappointed, John. I'm not going to lie to you. I kind of wanted Gonzaga to win because now. That Jalen Sugg shot means pretty much nothing. That's kind of no, gone into gone. the ether. It's and it's, it's, yeah. it's just, I saw it live. I was completely shocked. My mouth fell open. I didn't know what to do. And now, unfortunately, it doesn't really mean that much. Just like uh, there was a catch in the Super Bowl, uh, Seahawks. Uh, I think Doug Baldwin made an acrobatic catch, but it doesn't matter because all we remember is there was an interception and the Patriots end up winning that game. But that's why we love sports, right? It's real yeah. life drama. It certainly is. It certainly that's what is. we love to do. We take a risk every time we step over that line as athletes, as coaches, and as fans, you know, to be part of not sure what's actually going to happen. Absolutely. So obviously we're going to talk a little bit of sports during this conversation, but we also, I want to get into the psychology aspect of some stuff with you a little bit. Where, where does your love of psychology come from? Because I took a psychology class in high school and it was the most boring class I took. And I never really paid attention to psychology too much after that. So Tell me why I should have paid attention in that class when I was 18. Well, I've always been fascinated with the why of behavior, why people do things. And in my book, I talk about why, why do coaches coach, you know? And so that's always been very interesting to me. And I think I had a lot of background in looking at the psychology of health behavior in a variety of different areas, you know, physical, emotional, mental, moral, social, and those types of areas. And so it, uh, it allowed for me to begin to look at motivation and in, in the crux of the different ways that people tend to be motivated, you know, to perform, you know, whether it's in business, in education, in sports. So that's where my, you know, that, that first came, first love of that came there. And it actually came from, a, from an early experience that I had. And I really believe our stories tell a lot about who we are. 
And um, as we t- we're talking about sports stories in the pros and college just recently, uh, I was 11 years old and I was running in a road race, uh, July 4th road race. And I got to the starting line and everybody else was like 10 years older than me. And I felt totally out of place. Good hear my, my, my heart rate's beating fast. My hands are going cold and clammy. And I look over at my father and he gives me a smile. And it was just the right smile at the right time for the right reason. And what it was is, John, you want to do this? Well, you don't want to do it. Your call. You may you you make the call. And so I sucked it up, got on the line. A starter's gun went off. Three miles later, I came in dead last. People were cheering for me, you know, mm-hmm. because because the parade was catching up to me afterwards. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember out of that about my father's uh capacity to to be there for me, give me some autonomy, but also give me some hope, you know, at that time. And, you know, you've had Mitch Green on before, and he talks a lot about this concept of courage over confidence. And I didn't really have a lot of confidence there, but it was more of a courageous piece that went with the fear that that helped me through that. And since then, I've always tried to do that as an athlete playing at the high school, college, and pro levels, and then also as a coach and as a coach of coaches. I find that as a that, that primary piece is really, you know, what's your story? You know, what do you bring to the narrative? And what does that do and bring to the athletes that you serve? Yeah, and I think that's really important, right? Like understand, it's, it's funny, right? As you said, you were terrified when you stepped up to the line and then you did it and you're like, that really wasn't that bad, right? What's on the other side of fear? Nothing. Um, that's right. I, there, I mean, yeah. There's a million different um, whatever, uh, you know, if you, what's it when you um, line up fear and then they have all the words, F-E-A-R, whatever they mean. I don't know, whatever I'm thinking of, but there's just so many things that once you do it, you're kind of like, oh. I really wasn't that bad. And, and you bring up business, you bring up coaching, you bring up being an athlete and, you know, stepping in fans, stepping in between those lines. And it's always so funny to me that I'm always afraid to do something until I do it. And I'm just like, that was, why the hell was I afraid of that? It's stupid. And it's the unknown, right? It's, you don't yeah, know what certain. it is. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it just same thing through, you know, navigating through with sports through COVID with so much uncertainty there mm-hmm. about coming back, you know, there too, you know, um, going into the, you know, the masters tomorrow. You know, the, the last three days have been, you know, uh, peaches and cream for the golfers because it's been beautiful days out. And, and you know, but what will the pin placement be like tomorrow? Uh, what will the pressure be like tomorrow when money's on the line there? And uh, it's not the same course it was last November. Mm-hmm. And so all these factors come in there, you know, and so. I think I think it's really you know I've, I've always been interested in how do athletes pay attention to the present moment, and you know mindfulness. You know people will say, well, that's it's over talked about or overrated, but it really isn't. Being in present moment, you know, in everything that we do, uh, really gets the most out of the things that we do, whether mm-hmm. they're in sports or other aspects of life. Being present is um, something that I work on literally on it. I was working on it today. I it's, it's so funny. If you're ever thinking of the past or you're ever thinking of the future, I don't, maybe you have the statistic nine times out of 10 is usually negative, I think. Right. So if you're always, if you're not present, you're usually think of thinking of something bad. And I truly do believe uh, pay attention to what you're saying because you're always listening, right? Pay attention to what you say to yourself because you're always listening. And if you're consistently thinking negative thoughts, either from the past or what could potentially go wrong in the future, 
that's a recipe for destruction. So that was happening to me today. I literally was like, okay, I know this is not good. I, I know this is something that happened 10 years ago and it literally didn't matter at that time. And it doesn't matter right now. I don't know why I'm thinking of it. So just got up, took like a lap around my house, small house. So it didn't get too far, sat back down and it was gone and it was good. And, and I truly believe mindfulness and, and self-awareness, other people call it, is an absolute superpower. And I want to get to that a little bit later when we talk about your book, because I know self-awareness is something you're, sure. you're very, um, you're very keen on, but you, you, you said a couple things during that, um, uh, during this little back and forth that I want to touch on, especially, and I'm grateful you picked up the masters because a, I'm excited to watch every hole I can, right? Mm-hmm. B golf is right next to baseball. I would say one of the two you're in your head. There's really not too much going on most of the time, right? There's a total of like six seconds of actual, sw- right? Like, so Talk to me a little bit about that and like how athletes can take advantage of some of these things because, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we didn't care about it. 10 years ago, we didn't talk about it 15 years ago. And now it's, it's super, super prevalent. How have you seen that change in athletes over your time of being in this space? I, I think it, it's come to, you know, the, the, the sports psych piece to that, the mental side of the game has become so important. You know, and just because in any sport and that goes along with it, there's a variety of distractions. And many times athletes who are able to pay attention back to the mindfulness piece, you know, uh, you know, you know, uh, you know, sets distraction off to the side a little bit. And so I, I think it's really critical that, you know, athletes have set up situations where they're really consistent and they've played over events, you know, uh, over and over time so that when they get up to bat, coming out of a slump, okay, or the pitcher has uh, a rubber rubber arm or a golfer has the yips, you know, all these different things come in there. And those are kind of horror movies that are lodged in the brain, mm-hmm. you know, the prefrontal cortex, okay? And basically what can happen out of there, it, it drums up what, what's called in the mindfulness uh, genre, uh, the drunken monkey. Okay. And almost think of like a monkey running around your head crazy. And that's what it feels like when you're thinking all these different thoughts, as opposed to gearing into what you need to do in the moment and not thinking about it. What's interesting is, and this comes from outside of sports, but it's very much applied to sports is the work of Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Peace Nobel Prize in physics. Not it wasn't physics. Um and I'm not sure what it he was, won a but anyways, prize. either was, was won a Nobel Prize. But he wrote a great book called uh, "Thinking Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow," mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we we actually do that. So so most in the athletic environment, you tend to want to think fast, which means you're not thinking a lot. You're doing things that are happening right at that moment. You're using uh, the contagion of practiced the you know activity before. It's automatic and it's coming right out there for good or for ill, you know? Um, and then, you know, the, the, that's system one thinking. And so, uh, but the other side of that system too, and that's a little bit more laid back. It's deliberate. It's what you work on in practices to develop skills, to develop a focus towards what you want to do. I think one of the big issues um, with inattention uh, and an attentional error that happens in sports Michael is when somebody starts overthinking in system two, okay, about that next shot. Okay, I was just reading an article about Amen Corner at mm. uh, 
at, at, uh, at uh, the Masters in Augusta. And so if people are thinking of that three or four holes before, that's, that's, a, uh, that's a recipe for disaster. Absolutely. It doesn't really count until you actually have an approach shot to get there. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, and so I think that's important. But the thing is to be deliberate in what you're going to do in the moment is really important. So in many ways, athletes are learning how to train themselves or have other coaches or sports psychologists help to train them to be pay attention in the right frame of mind in those areas. And the more that they can do that, uh, the more that they can, uh, they, they can succeed. Um, I was talking to, a, a high school ice hockey goalie who I work with, and he had mentioned, he had read something about Brandon Holtley, who's the goalie, one of the goalies for the, uh, for, for Washington and, uh, the caps. And basically he was asked once, you know, try to, uh, be mindful for two minutes, you know, just, and he lasted 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. Now he's practiced that. He's done it over and over and over again. Hence headspace and and other apps like that to really help you, you know, allow for yourself to be there in that moment. And I think as the ages have gone on and with the technology, it it allows us to be distracted so much more. And so these are the things that athletes have to work on now to to maintain their edge. Yeah, because I, other people are getting there. It, it, it reminds me of what's called the red queen effect. Okay. And it's used in science a lot. And, and basically it's the predator prey relationship. So in Alice through the looking glass, never thought we'd be talking about Alice in Wonderland here. The red queen says to Alice, you know, Alice, you got to do all the running you can to just stay ahead of the game. It's a dog eat dog world out there. And Alice is going, what? Okay. And that sports are like that to a certain degree. Okay, so if you look and how much uh, how much uh, strategy has gotten more complex, equipment has gotten incredible amount better. Okay, um, athletes are are quicker, faster, stronger, bigger or smaller, or whatever you need them to be in that situation. Okay, to to specialize for that, but so many other people are doing the same thing. So the edge comes is that you can't. You know, the, the edge is that, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, you know, you're, you're the predator. Okay. If the prey doesn't speed up, it gets eaten. And if you're the prey, if you don't speed up, you know, the predator is going to get you. So we're continually learning new types of strategies, which behooves athletes and coaches and especially coaches now to really, to understand more of the psyche of the athlete, not necessarily their own psyche when they were athletes. Mm -hmm to understand the psyche of the athlete now and to understand their stories so they can be there um, as in, an amateur sports psychologist for them in the field of play. Yeah. And that's where you come in. You're the coach of coaches. Right. And I think one thing, uh, you, a couple things you said in there that I, I really, really like, I, I practice mindful meditation every single day. Uh, it's hard and it's something that I've done. I want to say for every single day, for the last like two and a half years, I want to say, I, I like ha have it in my calendar every single day. Some days I'm great. Some days I'm terrible. Right. But like the whole idea, what people don't understand, at least what I've kind of gathered from meditation and, and mindful meditation specifically is it's not about relaxing. It's about just being okay with everything. Right. It's, it's about understanding where you are specifically again in that moment and being comfortable or being 
okay, I guess that's the best way I can say it with whatever the hell is happening. doesn't mean you have to be relaxed. It means you can kind of breathe and understand what's going on. I think that's something that can absolutely help athletes, especially when we get to those high stress moments. Yeah, it's it's noticing what's going on and not attaching to it. Mm-hmm. So they scored a goal. Okay. Cool. Now we yep. got us. Yeah. Okay. okay. Now's an opportunity. Okay. And then uh, another thing that you said uh, that I think, uh, again, it's, you know, looking ahead to Amen Corner, it happens all the time. And, you know, fo- let's call it, let's just say football because I think it's the most pre- prevalent. Those look ahead games, right? This team should absolutely destroy this team. But next week, you know, Michigan has uh, Ohio State. So, you know, they're playing against some cupcake this week and, you know, we'll see what happens. And they usually win those games, but it's one of those things where, well, uh, you know, it's a little it's a little feistier. You didn't really quite expect you could kind of tell they were just kind of going in, going through the motions, looking ahead to that game next week. I don't know why I use Michigan, Ohio State. Michigan always loses that. But, um, you know, it's just one of those things where I think in team sports and specifically football, you see that a lot too. And and obviously in golf, it's a little bit quicker of a turnaround, but in football, I think it could be even more of a detriment um, in, you know, kind of looking ahead an entire week and not really paying attention to just the team in front of you. Right. And, and I think that that behooves coaches in organizations to help athletes do things. There's non-negotiables that you do over and over and over again. So no matter who you are playing when you're out on the field, that's what matters most. Absolutely. That's what matters most there. But human nature, you know, comes into play, as you mm-hmm. say, Michael. And uh, and that becomes even more difficult. It's almost predictable at times. You know, and we can be predictably irrational, you mm-hmm. know, and, and 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 make those mistakes. So Ohio State kind of kind of, you know, jumps out there, you know. And then uh then you look at Loyola just, you know, jumping all over uh Illinois. Mm-hmm. You know, and so those those are those are the ideas that, you know, you stay the course, you stay with that. You know, I was really excited to see how, you know, that Gino Ariyama with the UConn has such a young team, but they just stayed with the process through what mm-hmm. they did, you know, continually. And that allowed them to get as far as they probably could get yeah. in that tournament right then, there. Then they got yeah. beat up. But, hey, it happens. Yeah. What, are you, what is it, 12 straight Final Fours? I mean, worse, worse things have happened, right? That's um, right. And another thing you said, what was the, uh, oh, I want, so you said why coaches coach. I wrote that question down. That's going to be my segue just for people to, we'll we'll get to that question in a second. But I know one thing um, that you said, and I wrote it down and and we kind of spoke a little bit about it through our email communication was positive psychology. So psychology, I didn't know was negative or positive. I thought it was just like more of an understanding, but you practice what is at least termed positive psychology. Talk to me a little bit about that before we get into the book one more time, the coaching zone. Um, what is positive psychology, John? So, so many times when people look at traditional psychology, they, they look at the notion of if there's something wrong with you, you want to fix it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Positive psychology, which was coined by uh, UPenn professor Marty Seligman in probably back in, you know, the late nineties, early two thousands, is basically about the psychology of flourishing. What are the things that you do well and how can you do more of that? Okay. Now that's not, if somebody has a clinical psychological issue, some positive psychology can be used in that, but there needs to be a variety of other different strategies that are used too. But but with positive psychology really has a strong focus on strengths, resilience, and optimism. It actually, you know, focuses on to the point of what's called uh, psychological capital. Okay. And so if you think that in sports, we've got human capital and basically what that is, is uh, the knowledge and skills of athletes and coaches. 
your social capital, which are the social relationships, the connections, you know, the team and task cohesion there. But psychological capital, which is coined by Fred Luthens uh, of the University of um, uh, Nebraska at Lincoln, he talks about four different characteristics, hope, efficacy or confidence, resilience, and optimism. And having those four areas can be measured, and by working on those, those can allow for athletes in all types of, you know, people in all different types of environments to actually flourish. You know, so... So, um, it, and in some ways, it's 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 slightly related to grit, but if we take those four areas when combined together on a team, you know that's where you end up fitting the jigsaw puzzle together to get really really effective teams because you've got collective confidence or collective efficacy. So, if an athlete is hopeful, they're basically they're basically willing willing something to happen, not wishing to it to happen. As as one um, a uh, parent once told me his son really wished he could hit the ball. And every time he'd get up in little league, he wouldn't swing at it and he'd either strike out or walk. So he came up, you know, the last inning in that three to two playoff game. And, you know, he had to bat because that's the way the league was, you know, in amount of innings that you get to play and you get to bat. Uh, and he just, you know, stood there and uh, didn't swing and Three pitches went by and he struck out. They lose the game. The parents around the corner are muddling. Oh, why did they let that happen? Stuff like that. Get home and the son goes to the father. Dad, dad, I really want to hit. I really want to hit. Be able to hit. And the father says, that's great, son. Let's get you the, let's get your batting coach. We'll, we'll, we'll do everything. We'll go the high nine yards. He goes, no, 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 dad. I really want to hit. I don't want to work at it. I just want to do that. And that's the bottom line is it willing it. And what hope is about is setting goals, of course, but also, also what are the pathways of those goals? And if one pathway gets broken down, what's the other pathway? And I know coaches and athletic programs this whole past year have been doing using different pathways with, because of COVID, trying to get practices in, trying to get games in, and things like that. And then the third piece is agency. And that means that you have the capacity to, to, to move forward. It's almost in many ways like confidence, okay? And so where you have that capacity to, to, with confidence to have those mastery experiences that you've had before, and then you kind of try something new and you, you look at those mastery experiences and they can help you get to that point. And then also resilience and, and, and uh, you, know, you know, not just bouncing back, but bouncing forward. Mm-hmm. Ryan Kelly, the coach at Notre Dame football, once said his athletes are really good at bouncing back, but it's some of those special athletes that really grow and move forward there. And that last piece is optimism. And I think of Sandra Schneider's work uh, at University of South Florida on uh, realistic optimism. And with, this goes back to what we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. is that, that, that athletes who have a leniency for the past – you know, and and are, and are and actually can kind of uh, develop some false memories, okay, of what they've done with some mistakes that they've made that get in the way of their present, but also appreciating what goes on in the moment in the present, and then looking forward to the opportunities in the future. And when those four things come together, athletes have that level of psychap that really helps them to be ready in that moment and ready to go. And if coaches can pick up on what area an athlete might need to be working on, okay? 
they can actually, with some of their knowledge, they can help that athlete get to that point. Why coaches coach? As I said, that was going to be my segue into the piece about the book. And I had Hero written down here on my sheet to talk about during the book. So we took care of a little bit of that. We <laughs> talked already about self-awareness. We're talking about a lot of these things. So obviously, we have touched upon many of these points, but let's put some of this together. John Yeager, author of The Coaching Zone, Next Level Leadership in Sports. Why do coaches coach? Because I have personally spoken to uh, hundreds of athletes, right? I've spoken to many, many people, hundreds of people in the business world that some are high up, some are low, but they have leadership qualities and leadership skills. Most of the athletes that I talk to that end up being coaches is because like, they just love their sport and wanted to kind of stay at it now that's at the olympic level that's at the highest of the highest of the highest high level which is probably a little different than your local high school basketball coach who the hell am i though i don't know so you answer that question i've only asked it like three times why do coaches coach john Uh, tons of reasons 100 different reasons for 100 different coaches but a couple that come to my mind are similar to what you're talking about michael is that if they were athletes they kind of vicariously still live within the sport through what they do next And they end up just like the Lion King, transferring some of their skills and their understanding, their experiences in their stories to other athletes. You know, I've found some of the most effective coaches out there and at at different levels have such a good level of self-awareness. And they're such lifelong learners that they're able to make that difference in other people's lives. So I think that is a that is a huge piece in there you know, uh, of why. And, and some of it uh, also is uh, a reason is the, the, the compet- competition. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, it's, it's going for the brass ring. It's uh, as Drew Highland, the sports philosopher from Trinity once said, sports help to uh, make us feel complete. Okay. And then secondly, he says that sports in, in many ways, once we step over the line, we're not sure really exactly what's going to happen. That's you true. Know, and, 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 you know, and so that's, that can be really exciting and to go through that and, and to feel that, you know, that, that you have in there. And, and um, so, so it's a whole variety of different areas that, 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 that reasons that, that people go into it. And, and, and sometimes people go into it so that they can, uh, they, they can pump themselves up. Okay. And, 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 and unfortunately in some cases, uh, some coaches have um, an obsessive passion for the sport, okay, mm-hmm. to the point where it really gets in the way of other aspects of their life and sometimes in their athletes' lives. And there are some of their reasons to coach are, are, are more, more selfish-oriented, okay? Kind of like, uh, like living through your kids kind of thing? Yeah, living through, living through your kids without giving your kids autonomy, okay? Mm-hmm. And then coaches might do that all, some mm-hmm. coaches, some coaches, might also do that too. So, so I, I'm very keen on looking at, at, at having coaches become, you know, look at their own self-awareness, you know, uh, as a lifelong learner, you know, what are the stories that you have had, you know, that brings up your strengths and your shortcomings to allow for you to be who you are, you know, as a coach today. And then what are the stories that you actually tell your athletes? Okay. To help to bring them in there. You know, what's that, where's that pep talk coming from? Mm-hmm. Okay. And who's it, who's the pep talk for? Sometimes pep talks are for c- coaches. Okay. And they have to make sure that they're making sure that it's for their athletes because in, 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 you know, it's basically coaches are not the main actors. 
in the process. Okay, uh, and, and and it is the it are the athletes there. If can I digress and tell one quick story that got me into coaching and why? Yeah, I was going to ask. <laughs> so that what, let me ask it. So John, what got you into coaching and why? It happened in my 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 senior year in college, uh, playing lacrosse at Boston State, which is now UMass Boston. Uh, I uh, I had hair down on my shoulders, brown, nice, parted in the middle uh, with a headband piece. Okay, we're a bunch of hippies at Bow State. Okay, and uh, we were playing back in the mid seventies. We're playing in. Uh, I'm an old guy. We're playing in uh, against Bowdoin College in our first game of the season. And our field. Not sure if you're familiar with Boston at all, but our field was uh, three miles away from the Fenway campus. It was okay. actually close to where Fenway Park, where the Red Sox play. So we'd get we'd drive over every day to our practice field in, and then our field was just a lot of dirt, a little grass, and some some broken glass from the bar around the corner. And we were separated from with a chain link fence from the pristine fields of Harvard. So every day of practice and games, I could see Harvard stadium. So it was pretty cool, you know? Uh, and, and eventually when I, you know, I work with Harvard men's and women's swimming team and, and it's really exciting, you know, to, to be working in there. And then I can look back out at, at the field that I used to, uh, play on, you know, many, many years ago. So anyways, we get to the game. I'm excited. I'm a goalie. You know, some people call us courageous. Some people call us stupid. <laughs> okay. I get out there and I play absolutely awful. I wish they could have taken, coach could have taken me out, but my backup goalies were not ready for prime time. So we ended up getting crunched, crushed. So I grieved for the next couple of days because that was my identity at that time. Uh, but fortunately, two days later on Thursday, we were playing Middlebury College at our home field. So we uh, we actually were late for our own home game uh, to playing them because we went to get out of a, it was like the early, it was early around this time, April back 45, 46 years ago. And, uh, and we couldn't get out of Boston because it was Red Sox home opener. Oh, nice. And a lot of students cut classes uh -huh. that day to go to the game. And so we finally got to the game. Middlebury was always already there. And there are a bunch of really, really clean cut guys. And their head coach looked like he was ex-military barking on instructions here. And so I say, okay. And so I'm saying, you know, there's that drunken monkey in the back of my head. So I, I get in the goal after the warm-ups. The first, first shot goes in on me. I'm okay. It's okay. Okay, center, you know. And I didn't even know the term center then. I didn't even know the word term present moment. Next shot goes five hole through my legs. And I'm saying, oh, no, oh, no. And then the, the guy shot it again, and I reacted well. Made the save, cleared it out. We score. We're down two to one. We tie up two to two. Ball becomes like a beach ball to me. We win the game six to two. Mm -hmm. Best game I ever played in my life. However, that's not why I tell the story. That's the setup for what happened in the second period when the coach of the other team called a timeout. Uh, Rob Pfeiffer, and he called timeout. And we um, dutifully uh, ran over to our bench. And, and one of our guys on our team, Ronnie and Jemmy, and Ronnie had a uh, – shaved half his beard off before the game to pump us up. So I'm not sure what was up to his, <laughs> you know, with that. So he runs into the, there was something going on with him because he runs into the Middlebury huddle instead of the Boston state huddle. And you just don't do that. And the Middlebury players go, what are you doing, Ronnie? Okay. And he goes through there, jumps on the back of the coach of the other team, comes off the back. The coach turns around, Ronnie takes his helmet off half a beard and they look up at each other. They smile and they both begin to cry. And they hug each other. And the backstory, we didn't know what it was, but the backstory actually was that when Ronnie heard Pfeiffer's voice call the timeout, 
The last time he had heard that specific intonation of that voice was six years before in Vietnam. And Pfeiffer was Ronnie's platoon commander. Whoa. Big time timeout. Somebody asked, you ever remember your timeouts? Yeah, mm-hmm. that one. That one, I'd say. Holy crap. That one. I'm friends with Middlebury players today because of that. Yeah, that's intense. You know? Hard to forget that. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And uh, and so it's, you know, it's our stories that, and that, that, that said that there's a collaboration there with the other team. And so I really look at touch sports in that way. You know, nobody, you know, really enjoys a route. Okay. Fans don't. And people love it when you get those tight games, mm-hmm. you know, and just, you know, you know, you know, you, you're watching uh, Stanford woman uh, versus uh, Arizona woman, mm-hmm. you know, just come down to, you know, last shot, you know, last shot, you know, and that where each team pushed each other to that point. And that's really helped to give me that why to give people an opportunity at different levels to experience that. And I can be there to serve them and help them through that process, whether it would be, you know, a high school when I coached there, or I was an assistant coach in the, uh, in the uh, old major indoor lacrosse league that I played in also, you know, anything like that, that's really, really powerful. So I, 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 I liked having coaches tell their stories, you know, because it helps to look at four different things. And you can think of the acronym SARI, S-A-R-I. What's, what was the situation? What was the action? What was the result? What's the insight? So why are you here right now? Ready to go with it? Yeah. Okay, let's go. You know, and so, so, so that's, that's pretty cool stuff. So I, I kind of, with the book on it, wanted to kind of turn flip things a little bit from constantly looking at sports psych for the athletes and the X's and O's and stuff like that to look at, you know, what, what, what's, what's the psychology of coaching, you know, how can coaches, you know, continue to learn and be mentors of other people by knowing themselves, being able to self-regulate and to have that level of self-awareness. And it's like you're looking at my notes because you answered like three of my questions uh, during all that. But I, it, they're incredible stories. And that's why I do this. That's why this is my favorite thing I get to do because I get to hear. I would have never heard that story, John, if I didn't have you on my podcast. So I really do appreciate you coming on one more time. John Rieger, author of The Coaching Zone, Next Level Leadership in Sports. And it just came, it's coming out tomorrow or it just came out last week? Uh, it's uh, it's up on Amazon right okay, now. Cool. But it's um, it's uh, the official launch day is tomorrow. Okay. Okay, cool. Okay. April 8th. And, April 8th. Uh, and, we'll have uh, uh, we'll have the the uh, link uh, down in Amazon for everyone uh, to uh, in the podcast, so you can go check that out. You can buy the book right there. Yeah, yeah, that that would be great. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then uh, the uh, for, for tomorrow because of launch day, the the Kindle copy is dollar ninety nine. Love it. So we've changed the price to that because we want as many coaches as possible to mm-hmm. get the book. And there's a bonus gift that goes with it. I sound like a shamelessly Ooh. promoting the book here. And the bonus That's gift. Why we're here. For, for 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 everybody who purchases the book is they get to download a link that has all 47 exercises that are in the book so they can download it to have it in hard copy to use with themselves as coaches and their athletes because so often people try to write in the books yeah yeah, okay? yeah. and it's and and it's really the kindle's not going to give you that opportunity either to do that much in it so so that they can do that you know and and it's just that, you know, um, being able to, to play and, and also coach for around 45 years, I was able to, in many ways, Michael, just, just get to le- know and learn about so many different types of coaches for good or for mm-hmm. ill. 
And the 50 or so coaches and sports psych people that I interviewed for the book, they, they, they all tended to gravitate in, 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 in a direction that was, was really consistent with what I wanted, wanted the book to go in. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it was neat. And, and, and it helped that I knew most of them, too, beforehand. Yeah, probably you know, probably yeah, helped that, a little bit. You know, but, you know, but I, then I, you know, I go back and I think of my own coaches of my high school cross-country coach, Len Collin. And, you know, I, you know, I wasn't a very good runner um, even after that three-mile road race when I was 11. And, and I ended up quitting playing soccer in, in my senior year. Uh, but but the, that Len didn't know a lot about running, but Manny could get you excited about it. Mm-hmm. And it was that was that was great, you know. And then George Wheeler, my high school soccer coach that I had my senior year, then I coached under him years afterwards in Framia, Massachusetts. And he 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 just has his optimism was was just glowing all the time, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I look at that, and I look at some of the other coaches that I've had. Just really, you know, they they had things that really changed people's lives, you know, and I've been, you know, one of my uh, former athletes just passed away. He had been, he had been, you know, he had injured in a fall years ago and, 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 you know, back on Facebook the last couple of days with former players who I haven't spoken with, you know, even by social media in years, got back to communicating. And one Mm -hmm. of them said he remembered coming over to my, my house after uh, his freshman year. And that had to be in the mid seventies, 76, 77. And, and, and some of the games that we played back there and, and, and uh, over at the house and, and, and I'm saying, wow, you remember that, you know, I mean, and, and so that, 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 that says something to the power that coaches have out there, you know, that, 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 uh, and the important thing is the children are listening. Mm -hmm. Everybody is listening to what you do. So the coach becomes an emotional role model. They become a, they become a much more important person in people's lives. And some of them expect they should be or can be out there. And and on that point, like how much of, right, coaching is so much on the field, right? But you obviously just brought up multiple points and multiple pieces that is, has nothing to do with sports. And, and through the interviews, through the book, through what you know about coaching and, and coaching coaches, how much have you found that really it's the off the field stuff? It's the outside the lines things that are really just the most impactful and, and can even impact pe- people and their performance on the field. Uh, I totally agree. Totally agree. I mean, that's, you know, sport is one part of a person's life. It's a vehicle for happiness for most part, Right joy and satisfaction and performance. I'm a Mets fan, so I actually can't be happy. So yeah. that's just something to throw out there uh, three games into the season. Sure. Okay. Well, I was a Red Sox fan before <laughs> 2004. Okay. And so, okay. Uh, well. I, so I, I, I could feel your pain. I could feel, I felt your pain back then. Uh, but anyways, in 86, you know, so, but anyways, mm. the, uh, the, uh, uh, where was I going with this? Sorry. Uh, yeah. The uh, pain. No pain was that was being a baseball <laughs> fan um, on the field, off the field. Yeah. Off the field stuff is just that, you know, off, you know, what goes on off the field is critically important and coaches ought to know as much as they can about, about an athlete, you know, uh, about, about, you know, what their likes and dislikes are, how they can support them there. Whether they had, where, where, whether a, a you know a student athlete was uh, was dissed by a teacher in class, or there was a situation at home, 
you know, um, just to know to know those t- types of situations and not to uh, mind read, okay, and to be there and to be supportive and to cultivate the connection. And by cultivating the connection, it's developing a what we call a vulnerability trust. And that vulnerability trust is the capacity to for a coach to, you know, show their their own failings at times too, which can allow for the athlete to be more comfortable if they do make a mistake and know that they're not going to be railed for it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that building that trust up. And at the same time, coaches needing to be empathetic to really understand the overall perspective of their athlete. You know, what's it like to be an under nine softball player today? You know, what's it like to be, you know, um, you know, I work with UMass men's lacrosse and four of the seniors came back for a, a graduate year. And they were waiting and waiting and waiting and finally got games in, you know, but, but one of the greatest fears was that their last mm-hmm. game had already been played. Well, what's going through the mind there? Well, the head coach, Greg Canella, who's great there, he understands that and he sees that in them. Sometimes coaches have a difficulty, what they call the hot, cold empathy gap. That means that they've been there, done that. So they don't see what it's like to be a nine, mm-hmm. 13, 15 year old you know, um, you know, or, or, or 25 or 26 year old pro player, you know, that, that, uh, the, the importance of that, they, they can try to understand that and that they, they, they athlete knows that they matter to that coach. Okay. And, and that's, you know, a coach basically says, I am here for you unconditionally. Mm-hmm. As you sign off on your emails, every single one. Yep. Unconditional, no matter what I am here for you speaks volumes there too. And sometimes coaches say, well, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't have the, the verbiage and the community, you know, the, the verbal communication to do that. And I go, well, what do you do by example? Mm-hmm. Do that by example. Just like my father smiled there. You do that through those, those actions there you know, when the athlete really, really needs that, you know? And so, you know, it's really interesting. I, I saw recently online a picture of uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar when he was at UCLA with Coach Wooden, who was looking up at him and, you know, talking mm-hmm. about some t- sort of strategy. Then it had right next to that uh, yeah. picture that one, yeah. of, 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 of Coach Wooden in his 80s and Jabbar, you know, at, at his age at the time, holding Wooden's hand. The mentor-mentee relationship is reciprocal. Now, what's interesting is that coaches don't really enjoy coaching at times, don't enjoy coaching some athletes too. And that's where you have to end up faking it to make it mm-hmm. and try to find strategies that will bring out the best in the athlete. You know, that we can have biases at times. You know, so so it, and then so some some people listening that says, well, that's a not that's a this is a pretty tall order for coaches, yeah. You know to do and and it is, but if you're if you, the the rewards are so great if you if you if you kind of take and look at this stuff a little bit more and try it out, and you find out that it works. It's a foundation. It reminds me of uh, the Journey song. And I'm dating myself. Uh, don't stop believing. Oh, you're not dating. Yeah, well, Everybody knows that song, John. Yeah, okay. Come on. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm dating from when it first came out. Okay, I'll give you that. But it's, but it's the idea of belief. You know that that belief system. 
You know, I mean, does Jordan Spieth, you know, go into uh, Masters tomorrow with a confidence after winning last weekend? Does John Rahm go in with a certain amount of confidence because he hasn't focused on golf for the last five mm -hmm. days because his child was born? And, you know, one of the greatest moments of his life. So, you know, will he play well just because he may not need to worry about amen corner? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, he's got better things he to worry do about. It. And then how do their coaches who coach them help support them in that area, you know? And how do we do that as coaches in in, in other sports and, and allow uh, to our athletes to kind of learn from us? Yeah. I love it. Well, I can't wait. I'm going to buy the book tomorrow. As you said, that is the official launch date. It is available right now on Amazon. One more time, John Yeager, author of The Coaching Zone, Next Level Leadership in Sports. I just said it. Now you say it. Tell us where we can find the book everywhere, where uh, how much it is, and give me the name just one more time. Yeah, the name of the book is uh, The Coaching Zone, Next Level Leadership in Sports. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, um, uh, uh, on in paperback and in Kindle, and it might even be at one ninety nine right now. But uh, uh, we and and it'll be definitely into one ninety nine tomorrow. And you can get that. You can you know get the PDF from the the Kindle in there and uh, put that you know log log that onto your computer, and then you can get the. Uh, you can get your uh, the bonus gift there with the you know playbook of strategies that you have there, too. Um, uh, the the website for the book is www.thecoachingzonebook.com. Thecoachingzonebook.com. Best email to get me at is john at yeagerleadership.com. You can reach me at John M Yeager on Facebook and uh, John Yeager on LinkedIn. Um, and then if you go to the website, you just see and sign up, sign in for more information and, and, and just, uh, you know, be coming out with weekly newsletters and, and things like this to really kind of promote, uh, not just the book, but you know, here it is right here, folks, oh, very nice. promote it right away. Uh, you know, uh, but to, to, to give coaches kind of this, this literal playbook that you can, can look at and to look at three different things that go on there, you know, the self-awareness your ability to lead and empower athletes and your ability to choreograph the team dance. I love it. I love it. Well, I can't wait to read it. I'm not a coach, but I'm sure one day when I have a son, I'll probably be a coach. So it's probably a good idea to have now. I'm sure I could use it in business in some capacity too. So John, this it, it, was a, uh, it has, it has the leadership. It, it goes across, goes across the grain. Yeah. Can't wait. John, this was absolutely fantastic. My, my last question is usually where can everyone reach it, but you did a pretty darn good job at explaining all that already. Yeah. So, Thanks, That's Michael. it. Uh, I am good. One more time. John Yeager, author of The Coaching Zone, Next Level Leadership in Sports. Buy it on Amazon. 199 might be right now, if not tomorrow. So thanks, John. Appreciate your time. Thanks. Thank you, Michael. Good to Bye, see everybody. you. Yeah. Bye.